I don't know how understand how anyone, left or right, can essentially put forward the idea that you are going to deny somebody a place at a university or on a grad program for the simple reason that they are the wrong color skin or that they are the wrong sex. To me, it's abhorrent. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. But we're up against a, a, a bureaucracy and a system that is totally and fully committed to just the opposite. I mean, they want to create a racial spoil system in which individuals are punished or rewarded uh, based on their ancestry. I find it uh, disgusting. I find it uh, abhorrent. Um, and, and that's what I'm fighting against. In any kind of reform effort, there will be winners and losers. And who's losing in this regard are the people who were very comfortable maintaining orthodoxy, uh, administering their echo chamber. We're challenging that in terms of political power. We're submitting their ideologies to a democratic test. And I think they're squealing in, in large part because they're losing. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our terrific and returning guest today is an activist. He's the author of a new book called America's Cultural Revolution and the subject of the most hit pieces in the last week that I've ever read about anybody. Christopher Rufa, welcome back to Trigonometry. It's good to be with you. It's great to be with you. I mentioned the hit pieces. People, of course, will, will have seen our first interview with you so they know who you are. I would say you're one of the most effective people at dismantling the diversity, inclusion and equity, the dye industry in America. Um, and I su suspect that is why you're coming under attack. But before we get into that, tell everybody about some of the things you've been doing in education in America and the results that you've had. Yeah, this year, my, my big focus for my reporting, my activism, and other uh, facets of my work is uh, to put pressure on and abolish uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion departments in public universities. So I did an investigative reporting campaign exposing these uh, kind of ideological uh, commissars in Florida and Texas, worked with Governor DeSantis, worked with legislators in Texas. Uh, both of those states abolished their DEI departments in public universities. They will be totally eliminated by the end of the summer and phased out. Um, and uh, we also had this incredible project. Uh, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, appointed me as a board member of uh, the smallest public university in the state, of part of this uh, new slate of board uh, activist board members. And we were tasked with something very simple. He said, turn this university around and make it a classical liberal arts institution. And so these are some of the big projects that I've been working on. And I think that the reason there's been such a furious reaction is because I'm not just fighting in the abstract. I'm not just writing another think piece, but actually challenging left-wing orthodoxy and challenging, more importantly, left-wing power uh, within academia, which is, of course, their primary institution. Uh, and I'm racking up some big wins. You are, and that's that's why you're getting a lot of the the negative attention right now. What's interesting to me is you talk. You are not talking about a conservative education system. You're talking about a classical liberal education. What what does that look like exactly? What does that mean for people thinking? Because I think you, people would rightly see you as someone on the center right, and a lot of conservatives feel that the left is pushing the education system too far to the left. Uh, and the natural reaction for them is to demand a sort of very conservative reaction. But you're talking about classical liberal education. What does that mean and why is that your focus? 
So the, the, the mission that we've adopted and what we're trying to implement over the next uh, few years is to restore classical notions of liberal education. And what that means is, you know, liberal education comes from the Latin liber, meaning free. So it's an education befitting a free human being, befitting a free society. And it's an education that is not oriented towards partisan, ideological and political fights, the kind of questions of the day but oriented towards the highest transcendental goods. You have the true, the good, the beautiful. You have philosophy, history, aesthetics, art, um, all of the great uh, disciplines, the seven great disciplines of the classical liberal arts. And in addition, some of more practical disciplines because it's a public university. You want kids uh, that attend, have a chance to get uh, success in the job market after graduation. But what it means in practice is that what we've done is we've put in a new president, we put in a new provost, we're designing a core curriculum that is going to take students through the Greeks, the Romans, the Renaissance, uh, the American founding, all of the great uh, uh, historical periods, looking at literature, history, philosophy, logic, rhetoric, uh, and other great disciplines. And then what it also means is rebalancing the universities. And this is something that's happening at New College, but I'm hoping happens more broadly. What you have right now is a left-wing echo chamber and it's not good for conservatives who are excluded largely from uh, the academic environment, but it's actually not good for liberals either, kind of set left liberals or even uh, far left liberals, uh, because their ideas are never challenged. Their ideas are never tested. Their ideas are never uh, tested with this kind of friction of debate. And so what we're hoping to do is have a wide variety of viewpoints. Um, I know that's shocking and, and offensive to some, <laughs> some, but we want to have a real debate. We want to have good rules of civil civil discourse. We want to have people from uh, all parts of the spectrum. And what that means is a rebalancing has to occur. And for some people, this is painful, but uh, for, for, for some people, um, it's exciting. It's a process of renewal. I completely agree, Chris. I think it's very, very important as somebody who still identifies with a lot of left-wing principles. I, I think it's very important why do you think that there's been so much backlash to what you're trying to implement in these colleges, or in this college in particular? I mean, since the late 1960s, the left has, uh, has made the universities uh, its wholly owned subsidiary. I mean, this is the base of their power. They have saturated these institutions with left-wing ideology. They've established bureaucracies of diversity, equity, and inclusion that function as uh, activist training departments or, or, or uh, an orthodoxy uh, enforcement agencies. And so what I'm doing is I'm saying this has to pass muster with the democratic test. Do the people of the state of Florida support this kind of activity in their public universities or do they not? And the mandate that was given to Governor DeSantis by the voters of Florida and his resounding reelection win indicates that voters do not consent to this kind of governance. They do not want left-wing ideological commissars running their public universities. And Governor DeSantis is the kind of man who has the courage, the tenacity, the self-discipline, and the intelligence to actually go after it and, and start reforming these institutions. And so in any kind of reform effort, there will be winners and losers. And who's losing in this regard are the people who were very comfortable maintaining orthodoxy, uh, administering their echo chamber, we're challenging that in terms of political power. We're submitting their ideologies to a democratic test. And I think they're squealing in, in large part because they're losing both the intellectual case and also the practical political case. 
It's very interesting. And what, what does that mean that, you know, that what are you actually doing in these colleges, Chris? Are you, are you going in and what strategies are you using? There are a couple key strategies. So legislatively, the, 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 the bill that passed the Florida legislature and was signed by the governor um, earlier this year um, does a few things that are really important. One, it, it sets, uh, A, it, it abolishes DEI departments. You know, from the exposés that I wrote, it was very clear that these departments were not advancing pluralism or tolerance or acceptance of a wide variety of viewpoints and people, but they were actually enforcing a dogma and an orthodoxy. And they were using public resources to push left-wing ideology, uh, saying that the United States was a racist country, pushing BLM, uh, training students how to participate in violent protests, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so this bill eliminates those departments, just zeroes them out and says no more uh, uh, left-wing ideology within the administrative bureaucracy. A couple other reforms that are really important. The second one is that it, it restrains the core curriculum to say, we have to have a core curriculum that teaches students the basics of getting a liberal education, of, of being a productive citizen, of understanding uh, uh, what it means to be uh, a human being in the United States and a free society. So there's a reform to the, to the, to the general uh, education requirements in Florida's public universities. And then third, um, it reforms the hiring process. What's happened in so many universities, and I expose this in Florida, they're putting race-based preferences and they're putting ideological preferences, so, and, and which results in this uh, department structure where many departments are 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 30 to 1, 100 to 1, left to right. And so if you have a department in a public university system that is 100 to 1, left wing to right wing. You don't have free speech. You don't have debate. You don't even have a substantive intellectual uh, uh, environment. And so um, I think that changing some of the hiring process, restricting some of the uh, discriminatory hiring processes, giving university presidents greater discretion can help start to rebalance uh, the, the, the intellectual environment so that students can hear from a variety of perspectives. Students can test their ideas uh, against one another and against their their their, their professors and faculty members. Um, and I think that is ultimately what's going to create a great public university system, is having uh, a dedication to the liberal arts, having a core curriculum that educates citizens, and having a, 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 plural, a kind of pluralistic intellectual environment where students are exposed to, to more than just one set of ideas. And Chris, when you were talking about the college and the curriculum, I'm thinking as a, as, a, as a dad of a young boy, that is exactly the sort of place I'd want him to be educated. The classics, logic, re all of these things sound incredible. But I, I suppose I'm a little bit concerned, and, and I'm curious to hear your opinion about this, that we've now got ourselves into a position as your society and ours where we automatically evaluate a professor by their politics, if you like. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying you have done this, of course, but are, do you think we're ever going to get to a point where you, you're going to have colleagues in a department that don't even particularly know each other's politics because they are teaching Greek history or, <laughs> you know, ancient uh, Latin or something like that? Are we ever going to go back to that if we were ever there? Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's, there's two ways of looking at that question. I mean, first, in some sense, uh, it would be nice if you're running a uh, you know, statistics and data science department, if it wasn't, you know, fully saturated with politics and ideology, you know, if you're doing, you know, quantum physics, think about quantum physics, not about, you know, uh, uh, you know, how many genders there might be. Um, and so it, it, in some sense, I think for certain disciplines, that makes sense. But in others, it doesn't make sense at all. I mean, ultimately, what I think is important for people to realize is that 
there's a distinction between ideology and politics. And my contention that I've advanced and, and has gotten a lot of pushback, um, but, but I think is, is ultimately still true, is that our universities have been overly ideologized, but insufficiently politicized. And so what that means is that uh, we have, you know, critical theory, postmodernism, gender ideology, driving intellectual life in the departments. But we have this fiction that universities are neutral spaces that should not be governed by anyone, and that certainly shouldn't be intruded upon by legislators and taxpayers and voters who fund them, charter them, and pay for them. What I'm saying is that uh, it's time for public universities to be governed in the best interest of the public and to be governed specifically by the legislators who are elected by voters uh, to, to fund, oversee, and administer these institutions. Academics want to be free to push their ideology at all times, but they also want to be free of democratic oversight. I hope that to reverse that, I hope that the opposite becomes true over time. Chris, what happened to the notion, and as a former teacher and everybody who watches this show can now drink because I mention it at least six times an episode, but when I was a teacher, I taught theatre in secondary school and I was a primary school teacher. My opinion was my politics were completely irrelevant to my job. I left my politics at the door and my job was to educate the students in the, my subject or in primary school in the subjects that I taught to the very best of my ability. And quite frankly, my politics was my business and nobody else's. Well, you, you have a very, uh, very sophisticated reserve and self-discipline. Uh, I think that's what maybe describes it. But Look, I had the same experience uh, in my K-12 education, even in some of my college education. Um, you know, you have a lot of professors who you, you don't even know their politics. You couldn't, you couldn't guess. You might be surprised if you heard their personal politics, their partisan politics. Um, I think that is generally good. I mean, especially in K-12, you should absolutely check your politics at the door. Um, in university environments, look, if you're a university professor and you're studying some, or you're rather teaching something that is intertwined with politics... Your politics might come out, but the best professors that I've had um, at that at the higher education level were professors who also sought to create a balance within the course syllabus, for example, to say we're going to pair Adam Smith with Karl Marx, we're going to pair, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of the the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, we're going to pair, uh, you know, uh, you know, Ibram Kendi with John McWhorter, if you want to have a more kind of contemporary and 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 uh, a more immediate uh, question, and so I, I think that that is the ideal. Um, but I think that we should not mistake that um, kind of micro level um, uh, uh, kind of concealing of politics in a sense. You're, you're concealing it because it's not exactly relevant, just like you should conceal, uh, you know, your sex life uh, from your from your students. I mean, this is kind of common sense, but we should not mistake that for um, uh, concealing the fact that public universities are political entities. They're created by politicians. And, and so I think that we have this um, two levels where, where this question must be asked and there are two different answers. And I suppose the question is uh, about trying to get to a position because, look, when I think about my uh, university education, I was not, I studied economics and politics. I was not taught to believe Karl Marx. I was taught about Karl Marx and I was taught about Adam Smith and the ideas of the and Nietzsche and all these other philosophers. I was taught about their ideas instead of being indoctrinated with their ideas, right? Um, 
I, I suppose that's what we're trying to get with you is, are we ever going to get to that point? Or is it just now going to be about, uh, you know, everyone being obsessed with their view and imposing it on students forever? Now, it sounds like you're making progress on that front. Yeah, that, that, that we absolutely are making progress. And, and so I have a, a bit more of a, a subtle take on the question of indoctrination. A lot of conservatives say universities are indoctrinating kids to be, you know, blue haired gender communists. Um, that's kind of a meme that you see everywhere. And, and OK, I mean, I could understand why, why, why at first glance you might think that, but I don't think that's exactly how it works. I don't think that most professors um, are are, are, are you kind of consciously in a cult-like manner indoctrinating their students, pushing their ideology, um, you know, you know, converting them to the, to, the, to the cause in that kind of recruiting sense. I actually think it's something more subtle and more insidious. I think that it's just that they're not exposing students to any alternative sets of ideas. And so there was a piece from The Guardian, a critical piece of me that came out yesterday in The Guardian that, that, that illustrates exactly what's happening. This is a college-educated writer, Moira Donegan. Um, who made the media men list, which was kind of a horrific thing that 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 uh, you know tarred her reputation. But then she's a you know visiting teacher at Stanford in the gender studies department. This is someone who is teaching at an elite university in some capacity, someone who has a, a prestigious spot at, as a columnist at the Guardian. Um, and then she says, you know, well, I wouldn't go lost. that far, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Not know. that maybe prestigious yeah. these days. Yeah. Okay, a, a, a once prestigious, uh, uh, yeah. maybe. But, uh, you know, but she says in this piece, she says, Rufo wants to turn the curriculum at New College of Florida uh, and base it on logos. Uh, nobody knows what the word logos means. It, it means word in Greek. How are you going to make a curriculum based on word? And so what is this person missing? This person is missing that logos was the heart of Greek philosophy and then also the heart of the, the, the kind of Christian biblical tradition. You know, in, in, at the, in the beginning was the word, was the logos. Um, and of course, you know, Herodotus, Aristotle, uh, all of the Greek philosophers commented on logos. And then there's been 2,000 years of commentary on logos. It's rationality, discourse, language, word, um, uh, uh, logic. I mean, the, the very uh, description of how the, 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 the order of the cosmos is constructed is all embedded in that word logos. Um, she doesn't have any idea can't even recognize that it's a philosophical word, can't even recognize that it's a religious word, can't even recognize that it's one of the most important words in the past 2,000 years in the history of the West. And so this person is indoctrinated as a kind of gender cultist, not merely because someone was forcing it into her mind, although it's possible that that also happened, but because she has been deprived of any education in the classical liberal arts to the point where she can't even recognize the key terms of the past two millennia. And so um, that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're, I, I think, you know, I look back at my own education. I feel like I was robbed of an education. I was deprived of the, the great traditions of, of the West, not having been exposed to some of these classical ideas, classical concepts, and, and classical um, uh, pedagogies uh, until much later in life. That's such an interesting point, man. And one of the things I also wanted to ask you about, because uh, you, you're very funny with the hit pieces that you get on Twitter. I enjoy uh, back and forth with you. And uh, one of the things I found is both your supporters and your critics are agreed on what you're doing. And, and so when I read the hit pieces on you, quite often I'm like going, oh, this sounds like he's doing good things because a lot of them focus on the fact that you are dismantling the diversity industry. Mm -hmm. And 
from my perspective, that is an unquestioned good because I just see it as a new form of racism that's been allowed to, to be perpetuated on the British and American institutions for far too long. But for people who are perhaps, you know, less initiated in the culture war and, and all of this, what what is the difference between, you know, in America, you guys always celebrate, oh, this person is the first Italian-American to do this, or this person is the first African-American to do that. And that was never really a thing that was discriminatory. It was a celebratory way of doing things. But we've kind of got way past that towards affirmative action, which openly discriminated against certain people and stuff like that. So why is getting rid of the diversity hierarchy a good thing? Well, in public universities, it's an especially crucial question. So, um, look, I think most Americans, if not the, you know, the vast majority of Americans, uh, want people from all backgrounds to succeed. That's part of our national mythos, that this is a place where you can come with nothing and you can succeed. Um, you know, with, you know, debate about immigration and, and, and et cetera, set aside for the time being. That's a core part of the American story. Um, and, and, and so, but, what, but when you look at universities, you have to ask the question, what is a university for? What is the purpose? I think that the university is to pursue truth, um, to, to, to pursue, uh, to, to rather to produce knowledge uh, and to serve as a community of scholars from a variety of viewpoints that together through the process of reasoning and debate uh, and, and, and constructive criticism can, can, it can reveal or can touch or can uh, arrive at those great transcendentals, the true, the good and the beautiful. Um, so you have, you know, of course, uh, philosophy, ethics and aesthetics or art. Um, those are the kind of three uh, channels that we can create, um, you know, truth and beauty. And so DEI bureaucracies in practice are, are antithetical to those pursuits. DEI bureaucracies enforce orthodoxy. You know, I've exposed public universities that are literally telling people, these are words that you can use. These are words that you can't use. You shouldn't say men and women. You should say people and people kind. You know, you shouldn't say black and white. You should say, you know, something else. I mean, it's like, uh, down to the minute management of language by bureaucracy. And so I think that it stifles open discourse. It stifles uh, free debate. Uh, it stifles even the basic process of learning. It also then serves as a racial spoil system. They have hiring and admissions based on your, on your ancestry rather than your academic capability. They're rewarding people and punishing people based on uh, what their parents, uh, uh, you know, what their, who their parents are. Uh, where, where their ancestors came from. Um, and I think that is really um, deeply destructive and especially undermines the concept of meritocracy. Uh, and so in the American context, you know, of course, you know, what, what Jefferson thought of as is having a, a natural aristocracy of talent. Um, and of course, wasn't fully implemented during his lifetime, obviously, but we've moved uh, toward that toward that goal more and more. And I think that the DEI bureaucracy undermines uh, that as well. And then as a third component, what the DEI bureaucracy does um, is it manages the university and transforms it away from the pursuit of the, the transcendentals and toward the pursuit of current day political activism. I mean, it's training programs, it's student programs, it's faculty programs. They want to turn universities away from the pursuit of knowledge and towards the pursuit of ideology and the pursuit of partisan activism. That betrays the fundamental mission of the universities. And I think it betrays really the scam that the DEI bureaucracy is. It operates in these very nice buzzwords, but in practice, I think destroys the very heart of liberal education. 
Hey Francis, do you dream of that clean-shaven look but hate going through the hassle of a wet shave every day? Of course, because of disastrously low testosterone levels, I can only grow a moustache reminiscent of a cross between Freddie Mercury and a Greek grandmother. Every day I don't shave looks like an advert for Mexican Bandito Awareness Month. And a very important month it is too. Your face is the first thing people see when you walk through the door. Give them something to look at with Manscaped's Handyman. For me, being able to shave up to three days growth... More like half a day's growth. Good point. For me, being able to shave 12 hours of growth without the mess of traditional shaving is priceless. With the Handyman Skin Safe technology, I can reduce nicks and cuts and I can finally feel confident when going for that close shave. The compact design and airplane friendliness make this a perfect travel tool that you can take anywhere. And for the fellas with a little more juice in their papoose, Manscaped's Beard Hedger Pro Kit has everything you need to tame your mane without any pain in Spain. Did you add the Spain bit? Yep. Never do that again. Featuring their signature Beard Hedger, this thing is a juggernaut of fixing faces. This cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths all with one guard, so no more messy drawers full of extra add-ons. That's right, face grooming doesn't need to be hard. Get 20 different beard lengths in just one guard. The Beard Hedger is a high-tech piece of art and a travel-sized package with a long-lasting battery, universal charging, and a strong motor. Trust me, gents, you can't go wrong with any of these options. That is absolutely true. My Greek grandmother used it and it gave her the smoothest shave she'd had in years. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TRIGGER20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code TRIGGER20. Hit the refresh button with the handyman. What have I told you about improvising? It's in the script. Unbelievable. When it comes to ticking boxes, when it comes to diversity, look, as a former teacher, I saw plenty of kids who were really talented, really smart, had the ability to go to college, university, but the reality is weren't gonna go there because the schools that they went to were, to put it mildly, absolutely dreadful in which no learning took place because bad behavior, underfunding, etc., etc. Is there not something to be said for having quotas for these types of kids who have got a huge amount of ability, but because the education system has to put it bluntly failed them, that the universities can step in and maybe help to actually propel them forward in their careers. Yeah, I think there are two um, methods for attracting, you know, kids that are having those kind of difficulties into the university environment that also are consonant with the principle of colorblind equality, treating people equally and not giving, you know, favor or punishment based on ancestry, you can do a couple things. One is uh, there's a great system in Texas that says if you're in the top 10% of your high school graduating class in any high school in Texas, you're automatically admitted into the University of Texas system. And so what that does is there are, you know, of course, many affluent uh, public schools uh, where much more than the top 10% are going to college. They're qualified. They're, they're, they're habituated to it. They're encouraged by their parents. But for those struggling high schools, everyone knows if you get that top 10%, you're in, you can get to college. That's a way that I think, uh, in a sense, disproportionately benefits uh, those who are at the lower end of the socioeconomic uh, class by virtue of a proxy, of, in, including many uh, minority students. But it does it in a neutral, colorblind manner that I think uh, targets the, the, the right thing is saying, if you're a top performer at, your, at, at, at any one of our public schools, 
um, you, you deserve a spot, you deserve a chance. Um, the other method that you can do, and I think that it, that it's a method that that is that is commonplace uh, and certainly happens in the state of Florida, is that you can reward uh, scholarships or or tuition reductions based on socioeconomic status. So, if you are coming from a family, uh, you know, like my family, I had two, two lawyers as parents. Uh, you know, I had to go for those merit scholarships. I was not qualifying for those uh, uh, financial uh, need scholarships. That's fine. Uh, but if you're so- coming from someone who's, say, a great student, um, but comes from a background where you have maybe one parent or two parents, you know, working minimum wage, let's say, um, uh, I think that it's right and just and good uh, to give those folks a break, if not a, a, a full break on tuition for public universities for which they're qualified. But the third thing that's really important is that this is really what the SATs were designed to do, standardized tests. Um, in the mid-century period, um, the Ivy League universities were, a, were kind of an old boys club. Uh, your, your dad went to Harvard, you went to Harvard, your son went to Harvard. And so what they did is they created these SAT tests so that kids from all over the United States in inner cities and small towns and rural areas could compete in a very uh, uh, objective, in a, in, a, in a kind of quantitative sense, against all of their other peers. And what this allowed was for those great uh, Ivy League schools uh, at the time and those public universities as well to find those uh, those kids who were immense talents, who had the brains, who had the intelligence, who had the the, the you know the capacity to do well, um, but weren't connected uh, uh, socially or, or administratively with the universities. This gave them an opportunity to prove themselves. And so these are three solutions that I think solve the problem where left and right mostly agree, but they do it in a manner that doesn't create resentment, hostility, frustration, and isn't uh, also a violation of our constitution. Look, I completely agree. I don't understand how anyone, left or right, can essentially put forward the idea that you are going to deny somebody a place at a university or on a grad program for the simple reason that they are the wrong color skin or that they are the wrong sex. To me, it's abhorrent. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. And sometimes I wonder, it's a very, very simple uh, conclusion. It's a very simple position. It happens to be very popular uh, with large majorities of the public, but we're up against a, a, a bureaucracy and a system that is you know, totally and fully committed to just the opposite. I mean, they want to create a racial spoil system in which individuals are punished or rewarded uh, based on their ancestry. I find it uh, disgusting. I find it uh, abhorrent. Um, and, and that's what I'm fighting against. it. Yeah. And one of the things I was going to ask you, Chris, is you have been very effective. Uh, I would say uncommonly so uh, among the people who are attempting to challenge the very things that we've just been talking about. Uh, so what do you think it is that you have been doing that other people have perhaps not been doing? Because I think we all would ag- would agree that there is kind of now a quite a large ecosystem of people who are concerned about the same things that you and I are concerned about. Uh, an ecosystem of people who discuss them, who do podcasts about them, who interview authors who've got books about them, who write books about them. But there's a lot of talking and you're someone who's actually converted that into real action and real results. What do you think we can learn from from the things you've been working on? Well, I, I mean, first off, I, I sometimes joke that, um, you know, politics is not a podcast. You, you, you can't win in politics on a podcast. But that's that's somewhat tongue in cheek because uh, the the intellectual uh, ecosystem 
of podcasts, journals, you know, social media accounts, um, you know, video video channels is really really important because programs like yours and, and others are are how people start to get into the debate. They start to be thinking about these issues. They they give a platform for uh, the, the the great uh, journalists and and writers and intellectuals who are um, uh, working in this in this domain. But I think it's necessary but not sufficient. And and what is what is required to make it both necessary and sufficient is to actually do politics. And I find it, you know, so astonishing. I get critics, even from the right, that are saying, you know, um, we think critical race theory is horrible. Um, we think DEI is, is antithetical to the Constitution. But we're really concerned that Rufo is getting rid of them within public institutions. It's like, what are you people for? I mean, what, what, how do you go well, from that just premise to, to that Chris, conclusion? Chris, you know? sorry to interrupt. I, just to steal man their argument, and I have seen that argument made. Please. Their, their argument, I think, is they're uncomfortable with using the power of government to do those things. That is their concern. Totally, but, but that is like the most absurd concern possible because they're uncomfortable with using the power of the government to regulate the government. These are government schools. These are government institutions. And so the only, per, the only people who can regulate them are the are government you know agents essentially and so what my argument is is if you say that legislators channeling the, the 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 sentiments and desires of their voters are not allowed to regulate public institutions what you're saying is that the supreme power in our country is not the people is not the legislators who represent them but the permanent bureaucracies and the permanent bureaucrats that administer our institutions and so it is fundamentally an anti-democratic argument that they're making. They're saying the people have no right to regulate their government. Um, that is completely backwards to, 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 the, to, the, to the vision of the American founding, where the people, people were the ultimate arbiter and the government only secured, only existed to secure the rights of the people. Um, now, now, now we're getting into a kind of tyrannical uh, a model, and I think it fails uh, on those grounds. No, I agree with you. And that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Particularly when you travel around America and you realize how different different states are and people's attitudes. It, it seems strange to me that you would want to, that it's even possible that you would have the same values and the same attitudes everywhere because it's just so different. And so the different states do. Traveling around America has made me much more pro-states rights, just as an outside <laughs> observer, I have to say. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and I mean, and I think this is ultimately good, right? I think some values are better than others, obviously. Um, you know, I, 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 I support legislation in some states and, 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 and do not support the legislation that gets through in other states. But what I think I recognize, and I hope most Americans recognize, is that um, we want to have a pluralistic system. I mean, what is more boring? What is more humorless? What is more stifling than an entire nation of 330 plus million people where everyone thinks the same, everyone has the same values, everyone has to do the same programs, all universities look identical to one another. That's the, the, that's the homogenous world that we're drifting towards. Um, and, and, and I think that what that does is it, it, it deadens the soul. Uh, and, and I think the, the people who lead those kind of bureaucracies are some of the worst people in our society, frankly. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say that because they want to... Um, destroy uh, uh, the, the great uh, traditions of Western civilization, and they want to replace it uh, with, with, with a, a, a desiccated um, and discriminatory system of DEI bureaucracies um, that, that simply 
circulate whatever is the fashionable orthodoxy of the day. Chris, isn't your challenge going to be as well when you're when you're talking about recruitment? There are certain professions, for instance, becoming a teacher, which is naturally going to appeal more to liberal people, more to left wing people than it is going to appeal to right wing people. I mean, that's just the reality of life, isn't it? Same if you're a college professor who is a specialist in the liberal arts. Chances are you're going to be pretty liberal. I think that that is um, the I think that that is the reality in very recent times, but has not been the reality over the course of a longer stretch of history. And so I, I hear this all the time. You know, well, artists are always left wing. Uh, but if you look at the 18th century and the 19th century, uh, there were many right wing artists. You could actually make the case that that uh, that 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 the, the kind of great arts were, were, were embodying the spirit of the right, uh, the spirit of the aristocracy, the spirit of hierarchy even. Um, and so. I don't think that it's inevitable, um, although I would certainly admit that it's pervasive. And I think that, you know, from a practical perspective, if you say that the, 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 the kind of ratio of, of uh, you know, left to right in colleges, campuses among the academics and professors is, is, is 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 to 1, depending on the discipline, you know, we have to start acknowledging that that's the reality. And one of my personal goals through legislation uh, through kind of uh, governance in many different uh, conservative states, red states. I want to uh, see in the next 10 years, a thousand professors that are aligned with the classical liberal arts hired in state universities around the country. And these professors will be, because it's classical, in a sense, it's conservative. You're trying to conserve the classical notions of, of, uh, of, of these ideas, of these concepts, of these uh, histories. And so, in a sense, what I'm hoping to do is get at least a thousand academics that are that are uh, broadly and philosophically aligned uh, with with so many people who feel uh, unrepresented in the institutions, who feel like their ideas don't have a home in academia. I think a thousand people creates a strong enough counterbalance, um, a strong enough cohort, a strong enough network that then you can start taking over departments. You could start reforming uh, entire universities. You could start launching new academic journals, you could start creating another parallel realm of academic discourse that provides protection, that provides patronage, that provides publication opportunities uh, for people who dissent from the left-wing orthodoxy. That's something that I'm excited about and I'm going to be working for in the future. Would it not be an idea just to say as well that when a professor enters a classroom, particularly undergrad, they are not allowed to present a political argument and say, this is the way that you should think. That it is their duty as an, as an educator to go in and present these arguments neutrally. Would that not also be a way of doing it? There, there, there is an argument for that. And so, um, but I think that there's a better solution to that. I, I think that the better solution is to hire people in the first place that are already predisposed to that kind of temperament and that kind of pedagogy in the classroom. And so I think that it, it, fundamentally this is a, a hiring problem, a recruiting problem, um, and, and a faculty problem in that sense. Um, but, however, um, some states are now experimenting with uh, restricting uh, uh, certain pedagogies uh, in the classroom. I personally have expressed reservation about this. I've done it at the debate that I did at Stanford. And I said, look, I think that um, this is probably uh, not the best place for conservatives to fight. My own model legislation that I've put together with Manhattan Institute 
um, uh, uh, provides a kind of exemption for classroom instruction, focuses more on the bureaucracy and hiring and 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 colorblind uh, policies. Um, however, uh, the states such as uh, Florida that are, are, are that are experimenting with that approach um, will be challenged in the courts. Uh, but my view is that they'll prevail in the courts because we have a Supreme Court precedent, Ceballos versus Garcetti, that says that um, public employees, including public university employees, presumably. Um, are ultimately, uh, 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 they have a job and in their official duties, they do not have unlimited First Amendment rights. So you can't go into a kindergarten classroom and say, um, you know, all of you must be communists. Uh, your parents are, are evil. Um, and, you know, I declare you all, you know, cat gender. Uh, you, well, you can't, you can get fired for that because you don't have unlimited First Amendment rights. You have a job that you're doing. You're hired to do specific tasks. The question is, does it apply to uh, uh, higher education academics uh, in, a, in a college classroom? Um, again, e even my own reservations about the policy, I, I think that it does. I think ultimately uh, uh, college professors are in public universities are public employees and they're subject to reasonable oversight uh, and they're subject to, to, to kind of the reasonable uh, uh, preferences of legislators and administration. I know you I know I guess I know what your answer is going to be to this but there's a lot of people that we speak to who are in higher education or have been high, in higher education who say that it's completely compromised and actually the most effective strategy now is to build the, uh, our own institutions as it were what do you say to that argument I I I think that it is uh noble in spirit but deficient in, in its practical uh, uh implementation because the fact is, is that founding a new university is extremely expensive, and um, it's also very onerous as far as accreditation and launch uh, and recruitment and facilities. Um, and, and we cannot do that at the scale to compete with the existing institutions. Look, I support initiatives like University of Austin, the new university that's, uh, uh, that, that, that they're launching. It's kind of like an IDW university in a sense, uh, you know, heterodox university. Um, I think that that's great. But the fact of the matter is that we have 3,000 other universities. And if your argument is that most of them are compromised, oh, you have to do something about it. And and while it's very hard to influence, say, a private institution in the Ivy Leagues, um, although there are ways, we, we can talk about that. Where What we know we can absolutely influence in a profound way are public universities. Because ultimately, if you have control of the legislature and the governor's mansion, you can do in a sense, whatever you want, uh, uh, whatever you can get passed through the legislative process. And so I think that that is a much more immediate and much more fruitful and a much more scalable method. And so um, you put in conservative-oriented research centers, you do university takeovers uh, 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 at, at small universities, um, you reform the, the faculty hiring process to give more power to trustees and, and university presidents to create a little bit more balance on the faculty. Um, and then you also um, uh, make sure that you're you're restricting, eliminating, or abolishing programs that don't serve the public good. Um, that that's what I think is is the best path. Um, although it is, of course, certain certainly complementary um, rather than contradictory or, or, or antithetical to um, uh, the idea of also creating new institutions. And I imagine you're hopeful that the marketplace sorts the wheat from the chaff. In other words. 5, 10, 15 years from now, where there's enough colleges that have that classical liberal arts education available uh, that people vote with their feet and, and then the proof of that pudding gets shown. Uh, I'm curious, though, coming back to the point about 
lessons for other things. Uh, what do you think are the lessons from what you've been doing into other things? Because uh, you would you know full well that this capture that we're talking about with the education system also applies to things like the media. Uh, do you think, given that those things are not owned and run by the government, do you think that that is an area where it is about building your own institution? Or do you think that in other areas it has to be about something like what you're doing with education? Yeah, great, great question, and very much the former. I, I think that the media is, um, thankfully, with very limited exceptions for you know NPR and PBS and and grant, federal grant making, the media in the United States is a is a kind of private enterprise. Um, the media is a, a kind of an open system, and so I'm I'm very much uh, think that uh, we want to have, um, uh, you know, print media, broadcast media, radio, social media. Conservatives just need to build. They need to compete. They need to create great material. Um, and I think that they need to create also businesses. Uh, and I think that uh, the rest mostly solves itself. The only glaring exception where I think it's appropriate for public policy um, is uh, is under conditions of private monopoly. Um, some government uh, uh, intervention is, is justified, even under a libertarian reading. And so um, I think that there is some role, although it has to be delicate on uh, social media censorship, censorship for example, um, uh, particularly with those um, kind of vertically integrated and 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 uh, kind of monopoly uh, monopoly like firms, um, and so I, I'd like to see um, uh, some new ideas in that direction. But but broadly speaking, um, I think the media is actually. I mean, look, the success of your show, uh, the success of some of my uh, uh, my uh, journalistic work. Um, the, the the limitation is not you know the system the limitation is not that you know uh, kind of left far far left people have taken over the the you know NBC News uh, room the limitation is really that we have to to compete and create great work um, and, and I think that the role of policy is quite limited. Chris and let's focus on the Ivy Leagues the the Harvards you know the Columbia's etc. These are private institutions. Correct me if I'm wrong because I'm I'm not particularly yeah. au fait. Okay. So what do we do with a private institution? Because that's not governmental. So what do we do with them? Well, this is actually a fun question. And I'm glad you asked because I've been working with some other scholars and policy uh, analysts on exactly this question. And there's a couple things we can do. I mean, uh, you know, A, private universities are subsidized to the gills by the federal government through student loans and student loan guarantees. And so I think that you could reform student loans and make uh, universities liable in part for student loan defaults. So if a student racks up twenty-five, you know, two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars in student loans, getting a gender studies degree from you know private university A, uh, and then can't pay it back, well, why isn't the university on the hook to repay that, say, half of that loan? So create some financial incentives for them to be um, uh, uh, more, more more competitive and and more judicious in how they. They run their their uh, programs. Second, what you can do, uh, and what I'm recommending uh, the next president of the United States to do, uh, uh, you know, if it's a Republican, um, uh, is is to launch a Department of Justice and Department of Education investigation into all of the Ivy League universities uh, to investigate them for uh, uh, illegal and unconstitutional uh, racial discrimination in hiring and admissions. And so, what we would do is essentially. Take what what the, the the lawyers did with the Harvard lawsuit, 
which established that that Harvard's admissions policies was unconstitutional, um, were unconstitutional, and then expanded to all of the prestige universities um, using the power of federal investigation um, to to procure documents, to put you know a few hundred lawyers on the case, uh, and, and and in a sense to 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 embarrass, to expose, to punish, and then to take corrective legal action against universities who are violating the Constitution. Uh, I think that would make waves. I think that would make huge changes in behavior. And I also think that federal uh, federal funding uh, for these universities, they get billions of dollars. Private universities get billions of dollars in, in grants and in, in programmatic funding and, and other kind of uh, uh, federal financial schemes. Why don't we tie that funding to principles of open speech and debate principles of civic discourse, principles of non-discrimination, um, and, and in a sense say, um, if you don't fulfill the basic mission of the university, being a home for open discourse, having a standard of civil debate, you no longer qualify for federal funds. Uh, the, this is how it works in almost every other domain of life. If you do not follow the basic rules, you do not qualify for special benefits. And so I think there's a lot that can be done to, to tame these private universities and one thing I've learned in particular fighting in academia, academics um, are not very, you know, they're not economically productive, right? They're, they're not, uh, you know, creating, uh, you know, iPhones or whatever. Um, what they have, what they trade on is prestige. Um, and, and that's really their full, they, they always put their full, the, you know, the, the, the famous Jacob Urofsky professor of whatever at Yale University, uh, the, the, the famous line from Jason Stanley. And so, what I've learned by, by kind of, you, you laugh at that, it's kind of funny, but, but actually it signif- signals a great vulnerability. If you can um, kind of attack the prestige and attack the reputation uh, and, 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 and undermine the, the prestige and reputation of individual academics, but academic institutions as a whole, um, that is a very powerful method for getting change. And Chris, one of the things we wanted to talk with you about as well is, as I think you can tell, we're fully on board with the idea of dismantling the diversity bureaucracy, uh, classical liberal arts education. Uh, And uh, I certainly see that, you know, and you talk about this in your book, America's Cultural Revolution, the way that the far left has infiltrated so many institutions and essentially seized control of the means of intellectual production in all sorts of areas. Um, are you concerned, though, for example, we see that we saw the case in Florida where I think in one county, Francis and I were looking at this article earlier, they've banned the teaching of Shakespeare in schools because it's got sexually explicit content. And you can kind of see what's happened there where maybe people have felt that, you know, rightly, we talked to, to Carol Markowitz when we were in Florida about, about some of the things that kids are being taught. And you're going, no, no, children should not be taught this very sexually explicit content. But it, it feels like there is at least a very real risk of a overcorrection, overreaction, a, an excessive backlash. Is that something that you see happening? And are you concerned about that at all? Well, that's interesting. I, 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 I don't know the specifics of that story uh, of, of Shakespeare, um, but, but I would venture a guess, you know, speculating. Um, uh, and I would say that this is the, the pattern in many other cases that sound like this. You know, you see the headline, school bans, you know, Shakespeare. You dig in, a couple things might be happening. Might be. I don't know in this specific case. One, it might be a single parent says, hey, I'm going to flag this book and it has to go through a process of, of review. And then, of course, it's Shakespeare. It'll get reviewed and it'll get put, put back in the shelf or the curriculum or whatever is the case. 
But there's a second thing that is very um, commonly occurring, and, and it's very sneaky, and they almost never put it in the news article because a lot of the news articles are, are not news, they're, they're, they're propaganda. But what's a phenomenon Sorry called to malicious- interrupt, Chris. This was, uh, just, this was a New York Post, by the way, just for clarity. Okay, okay. Well, yeah. I, I'd, be curious to, I'd be curious to read it, but, but perhaps this is what's happening. There's something called uh, a kind of technique called malicious compliance. And I've seen this over and over in Florida where um, kind of left-wing, ideological teachers, librarians, citizens, what have you, will say, oh, what can we do to embarrass uh, you know, the governor? What can we do to, to, to put pressure? We're going to flag Shakespeare for a, 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 you know, a racy a sex scene or whatever. Um, and then we can feed it to the media. The media will say that, 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 that you know, Shakespeare has been banned. But really what this is, is a, a, a librarian um, uh, kind of, or, or, or another official violating the spirit of the law, violating actually, in most cases, the plain reading of the law, distorting the reading, uh, uh, putting something on a list uh, in, in a kind of manipulative and false way in order to generate negative headlines. And so I would suspect that what you'll see is that Shakespeare will be back uh, in the library uh, immediately. I, of course, would uh, support uh, the complete works of Shakespeare in the library. And I think what, what parents are really uh, trying to, 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 to stop is, is against pornography and sexually explicit materials. You know, there's books that are teaching, you know, depicting uh, you know, acts of pedophilia, books that are uh, teaching children how to, how to use gay sex apps. Um, that's the kind of thing that is in classrooms uh, that shouldn't be in classrooms. And so I, I, I don't think that any conservative that I know or really any conservatives in any meaningful sense wants to restrict Shakespeare. Um, I, I would suspect something else is going on. That's it. Yeah, that sounds perfectly credible. Chris, the one thing that I find quite interesting, and again, as a former educator is, and maybe look, I'm reading a left-wing liberal paper and it's a misrepresentation. I was reading about uh, how sex education has been banned in Florida. Now, I'm, as a former educator, I'm not particularly comfortable with it. And I'll explain to you why. Because particularly with young children, sex education is not teaching them to be sexual. It's actually teaching them to protect themselves from abuse. And children who grow up in households that are sexually abusive are not taught about this for very obvious reasons. And I've seen in my own experience where cases of abuse have been missed because a child is not able to vocalize what is happening to them because they are not sexual people for because they're children. Sure. Uh, well, I, I think that it's important to then review the, the, the text of the law, let's say in Florida, where I'm most familiar with it. Um, the text of the law says there, there shall be no instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in first in K through three and now in K through 12. And so and then it also has a carve out for um, state mandated sex education should be can, can, it, has, it, it must be you know permitted, included in, in the classroom. And so uh, any kind of uh, uh, training or prevention or discussion about potential sexual abuse it's not about gender identity or sexual orientation. It's part of the the, the existing you know K through twelve uh, sex education curriculum. There's a clear need for that. Uh, would not be restricted. And so, I think that that is a very uh, a good way to look at it. There are certain things that, like you know, sex abuse prevention education um, or reporting uh, education, that I think are absolutely should be included. That's still in the curriculum in Florida. Um, but teaching kids that they might be uh, pansexual, teaching children that they might be 
um, you know, how to use uh, gay sex apps. Eh, I think that that is, uh, you know, something that maybe Beth uh, left. Uh, I mean, actually, maybe Beth, uh, you know, uh, not in the K through 12 system at all. But but certainly uh, if parents want to teach their kids, you know, all, all, all the new genders, um, you know, that's their right. Uh, but they don't have uh, they don't have an entitlement to push these ideas in, in the public school system. Come on, little Johnny, <laughs> let me show you how to use Grindr for kids. There you go. That, that, is, <laughs> yeah. that is a fun time with that as, as, as no one has experienced. Uh, Chris, we're about to head over to locals where we ask you questions from our audience that they've already submitted. Before Great. we do, as you know, we always wrap up this part of the interview by asking you uh, what is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that you think we should be? You know, I, I think that it's something that we've been touching upon a bit in this conversation. It's that, um, you know, we need to talk about how democracy functions. And and I think that the left has made their slogan, you know, this is what democracy looks like. Democracy dies in darkness. Uh, some other, you know, some other kind of rift on this. Uh, you know, Trump is a threat to democracy. I mean, all of these uh, democracy, democracy, democracy. I think conservatives, though, are missing uh, are missing something on, on the word democracy and also on the word justice. The left is this justice, that justice, you know, X, Y, Z justice. The conservatives have a temptation and even kind of center, le- center right liberals, let's say, have a temptation to say, oh, the left is demagoguing on democracy. The left is demagoguing on justice. You know, uh, 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 those are those are left wing words. I think that that's totally a, a missed opportunity. And in fact, we need to have a competing vision of democracy and a competing vision of justice um, that I think would resonate with large majorities of the public. And we've really seeded those words, seeded those concepts to our opponents. And uh, and I think that this uh, conversation about education reform, university reform, it speaks to this issue. It's that um, you know, in a democracy, in a republic, but let's say in a democracy, for, for kind of shorthand, um, uh, the voters, the people, through their legislators, get to decide how their institutions are governed and towards which values their institutions aspire. We've lost that in our country, maybe in your country as well. We've lost the sense that the people determine the ends, that the people determine how institutions function, that the people determine what institutions are transmitting from one generation to the next. We've seeded that. We've 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 closed our eyes to how our democracy functions, and I think that is a really dangerous uh, future if we continue. And so one of my goals uh, against the left and against even the right, my, my critics on the right, is to unapologetically be a champion of democratic governance of our institutions. Uh, and, and I think that that's a conversation that needs to be had. Perfect. Well, if you're listening and watching this, we're going to continue the conversation on Locals. Head on over there and we'll answer some of your questions. What was the breaking point that pushed you so far that you stopped caring when someone weaponized empathy against you? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.